there there have been really two incredibly important trends over the last several years. One is the growth of CTV, and the other is the reduction in identity. They're not privacy people. They're anti-advertising people, mm. and they shouldn't be listened to, frankly. I think there's also an interesting philosophical question, which is, are, is clean room an independent category, or is it a category that specifically should belong to the sell side? Hello, and welcome to season two, episode one of the AdPod. Who'd have thunk it? We got a second season. The feedback for season one was incredible, and I was so fortunate to be joined by 12 amazing guests that I didn't want the fun to stop. So this season, I'm starting with none other than Ari Paparo. My intro wouldn't do Ari's career justice, so when we get into it, I'll let him do that. But in this podcast, we discuss big topics for digital ads in 2022. So we cover identity, connected TV, emerging channels such as in-game and digital at home, transparency, and also we touch a little bit on Web3. So it's a great episode and one I know you'll enjoy. So without further ado, here's episode one, season two of The App Pod. Hey, Ari, welcome to the first App Pod of 2022. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, great to have you as our first guest for season two. Um, you're one of these people who I don't think needs many introductions, but for the purposes of those who might not know you, would you mind kind of explaining what you do and a bit about your career? Sure. Uh, I've been in Antec going on 20 years, uh, starting at DoubleClick when it was a separate company where I led up a lot of the buy side and rich media initiatives, sold through to Google, um, where I was executive there for several years. I was head of product management at AppNexus um, during its formative years. Um, I am the patent holder on Nielsen DAR. Uh, I'm the creator of the VAST standard. Uh, and most recently, I created and grew a company called Beeswax, which was a uh, highly sophisticated and customizable buy-side platform uh, through its sale to Comcast's freewheel division um, last year. Um, and I have recently left freewheel and now I'm on to new things. Awesome. And uh, maybe we'll get into some of those, but clearly want to be talking today around 2022, some of the big things that are happening in the industry and kind of great to get your perspective on them. Um, there's lots of ways I thought around how this could go, talking about this coming year and beyond. But I guess a starting point would be, from, from your perspective, digital advertising, what's the one thing which like this year and sort of going forward is the most interesting or to have the biggest impact? Well, I'm not sure you can narrow it to one, but I can narrow it to two. There have been really two incredibly important trends over the last several years. One is the growth of CTV, and the other is the reduction in identity. Um, and um, those are not new topics. Probably anyone who's listening to this has heard many people talk about it. Um, but I'll just kind of add uh, my color here. Um, on the growth of CTV, um, this has been a long burner. And like I said, I, I created Vast. And I created Vast back in 2009 or 2010 because video was, advertising was becoming important and it needed standards and liquidity. Um, and now we're, uh, we saw in the 
uh, in the post-pandemic world or the in the pandemic world, a massive movement towards uh, people watching video content in ad-supported ways from their home um, and uh, growth in all kinds of uh, paid services from the major media companies. And all of this has driven the dollars and advertising to connected TV uh, environments. Um, they're high CPMs, generally high quality environments, great for advertising. So there's a lot of very interesting things going on there. And uh, that that's likely to continue to be top of mind for everyone in the market. Um, the second trend, the loss of identity um, is messy. Uh, <laughs> we've been, uh, once again, I've heard about cookies going away since like 2010, literally. Uh, and then, and it's been a boiling the frog situation where Firefox turned them off, then Safari turned them off, and then Safari turned them off in app. I mean, not cookies, but identity. Uh, and then Google threatened to turn them off and then didn't and hasn't done anything. And it's a giant mess. Uh, and so ad tech loves a mess. That that that, uh, that is true. That is true. <laughs> Antic loves a fragmented, unregulated <laughs> maelstrom, and so everyone's out there with their own solutions. Vendors have solutions. Uh, agencies have white papers and points of view. Marketers don't know what's going on, and meanwhile, <laughs> Google keeps ringing ringing the cash register. Uh, so, so that's kind of a pretty messy situation. Yeah, definitely. And we'll, we'll get into the um, some of the ins and outs of identity, because obviously that's, as you say, one of the biggest things. But I guess to start with CTV, you know, you mentioned that the pandemic kind of drove more users to consume the content in different ways. Um, sometimes when people talk about CTV, it can be met with a bit of cynicism. I mean, probably mainly in Europe, um, because some people say it doesn't really have this scale yet to be something which is seriously considered in Europe but then having lived in the US for the best part of two years as someone who has YouTube TV and about 94 different subscriptions um, and different ad funded apps I can see why I guess you know from your perspective CTV how big is the ad opportunity this year like, is, it, is it is it something all marketers should be going for or is it a more tread the water see what you think about it first yeah, I, I think you're right to point out that this is a largely regional uh, market. Uh, so the United States CTV market is very different from France or the UK. Um, and so each marketer in each market needs to think through what the best strategies are for them. Um, I, I think the bigger point is generational. Um, I mean, anyone who has kids knows that they just do not watch linear television, except maybe some sports here and there. And even uh, there's quite a bit of statistics that the next generation is much less interested in organized sports than uh, than, than potentially people of my age. Um, and uh, and if you just watch those trends um, and you want to be able to reach those consumers with sight, sound, and motion through video advertising, uh, then I think it's pretty clear where you have to be investing. As to the mechanics, can you reach your audience at an affordable rate to get ROAS on your ad buy? Well, that's gonna depend a lot on your on you and, and, and your market, right? Is there enough available to buy? Can you afford the rates um, and, and all of those important considerations? So it's not one size fits all. Um, but I certainly think that if you're a traditional television advertiser, or even if you're you know a YouTube video advertiser, you should be you should be looking very seriously at connected TV opportunities. And and with those opportunities, you know, I, 
I don't want to use the term walled garden, but I will use the term walled garden. Like some mm-hmm. of them you can only access through specific buying points. It's sure. not as say democratized as say the early programmatic world. Um, do you think that is that remains or do you think it becomes a little bit more opened up over time? Like where do you sort of see that going? Well, the fundamental aspect of the connected TV market or really the video market is is that it has more demand than supply. So uh, in we're so used to desktop, or at least us old timers, we're so used to desktop where there's always this thought that there was unlimited supply. Um, and so you needed all these technologies like header bidding to get the best yield and all that sort of stuff. It kind of gets flipped in the TV environment where for the most part, there is less supply than demand. Um, and as a result of that, um, it, the controllers of the supply, either direct or distri- through distribution channels, um, aren't under as much pressure to open up. Um, so to give an example, not to pick on them or anything, but you know, someone like Amazon who has uh, increasing amount of consumer penetration of their connected TV uh, environments, be it the stick, uh, Fire Stick or uh, IMDB TV, IMDB TV um, they may make a choice to only make that available to the Amazon ad tech stack um, and, and continue to make that choice unless and un- or until it would be more beneficial for them to get demand from third parties like DSPs, like the Trade Desk and other folks like that. Um, it's, it's really a rational conversation. There's not a lot of, um, not a lot of uh, you know, skullduggery and complexity here. <laughs> they just are making rational decisions. Got you. Got you. Cool. Um, and just moving on to sort of another 2022 trend, or actually, no, I mean, a trend that started sooner, but probably getting a bit more scale this year is sort of emerging media. So things like in-game advertising, um, digital audio ads, digital out-of-home ads. Um, there's kind of more places you can get ads than ever before because of how consumers consume their content. What does that mean, do you think, for you know digital advertising in general because these these environments are quite unique they're not very standardized like how do you think they sort of grow or not grow in 2022 right right everything old is new again um all of these topics (laughs) i I literally worked on these topics in 2009 when i was at double click i had a chart showing all the ways you could advertise in digital out of home etc etc what's happened Two things, uh, I would say two things have happened. Um, one is uh, that these emerging formats have proven in some cases that they're quite effective at driving advertiser results. Audio being an example, where the growth of podcast advertising has come along with it, um, a pretty strong belief that those ads are very effective. Um, and even if they're not as measurable as other ads, you know, people are a direct response advertisers have various ways of measuring the results, you know, use our coupon, pod or whatever, you know, those sort of techniques. Um, so I think there's a belief that audio ads really work. Um, and um, and similarly, I think on a point basis, digital out of home has a pretty similar, um, similar kind of um, track record. Um, the countervailing force is that um, these new kind of domains of advertising, digital advertising, have resisted um, any synergy with the larger pool of advertising we're more familiar with. Um, and you can see this by the fact that none of the major DSPs or SSPs has jumped into any of these formats. Um, if, if 
there was a real synergy, let's say, between audio ads and display ads, then the trade desk would have an audio ad product and probably make an acquisition or two. But the fact is that they there is no synergy. You can't really do anything technically to make them integrate in terms of like managing frequency or um, or getting really good media planning or or anything really. <laughs> so um, because these these new formats, audio and um, and digital out of home in particular, are really silos technically, um, they are they're staying. I would call them in their own mini ecosystems with their own vendors and their own uh, customer selections, uh, selection processes, um, and not, you know, joining the whole. So I, I think the exception is in-game, where um, there's been a problem with in-game, which is that the ad units are so different from display or, or uh, typical mobile ads. They're uh, three-dimensional. They may not be fully viewable. Uh, they can't be clicked on. They have a lot of problems. Um, and um, and it'll be interesting to see if um, some of these um, startups that have recently been funded to enable game advertising can scale. And uh, with all the hype around the metaverse, you would kind of be really interested in technology that can put ads in a three-dimensional environment and make them compelling. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the advertising opportunities in the metaverse will just keep you up at night if you thought too, mm -hmm. too much about it. But I was also thinking around, like, because you mentioned the silos and how it's not as integrated. And I think from a marketer's perspective, measurement is very challenging because you have to almost assess every medium in its own way, which, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something you might have to do. Um, I think solving for that as a brand is probably something which is, you know, if you can get it right, you start to put some good KPIs into those mediums. You start to invest a bit more confidently and because, you know, comparing audio to display is very different and, as you say, like things like frequency capping them, uh, it's it's definitely challenging. It's really challenging, and there's no there's no way to do it. Like there's no holy grail here. Um, even even in the digital channels, can't really be compared across Google, Facebook, and open web. Um, so I, I think smart marketers do invest in some uh, experiments and other ways of trying to get to the bottom of it. Things like um, match market tests geographically where you turn off advertising in certain geographies and turn them on in others and see the difference. Um, or sometimes just blackouts. I know of one marker that just turned off YouTube for two weeks, all, all YouTube, just to see what would happen to their other channels because there's no other way to measure it. Mm. And um, I think that leads sort of nicely into the, the, sort of the, the holy grail identity. <laughs> there's, mm -hmm. the, there's so much going on, as you mentioned at the start, with like, you know, one of your two biggest things for the year. and um, I mean, let's okay. We need to start somewhere. Identity. I, I was thinking a good place to start an identity is um, the unified ID, which is now part of, or I think now part of the tech lab. I know it's meant to be transitioned out of the yeah. trade desk. I thought it didn't actually transition. I thought oh, it was still older. Oh, it's definitely stated. Well, what are your thoughts on the UID? Like, is it actually something which will scale or will be adopted or no? Yeah, oh, God, what a topic. Uh, I'd say that, um, <laughs> it is a very controversial topic. Um, I would kind of separate it out to, to policy versus practicality. Um, so on a policy basis, the UID is basically taking user emails, hashing them and using them as identities. Um, 
it is unclear if that ultimately passed muster against GDPR and California privacy and other rules. Um, you, anyone who says they're sure it will be legal is definitely um, uh, speaking out of turn. I, I think there's a real argument that it's still under GDPR considered a pseudo identifier um, and that it would still require consent. Now that's fine because imagine if you're getting a user's email, you probably have an opportunity to get that consent. Um, but once again, the, with the EU's um, various rulemaking, it seems less and less likely that sort of this idea you can broad consent to broadcast an ID to 50 parties um, will pass muster. So it, in a sense, it, it solves the browser problem of not allowing cookies, but it doesn't really solve the policy problem of uh, protecting users' privacy. Um, now, when I say that, I'm saying that from a sort of a real politic point of view about what the regulators think. I think if I was to put on my hat as a my uh, as a personal opinion, I think it's totally privacy safe. I think it's total nonsense. These privacy fanatics won't allow anything. But that's a different issue. That train has left the station. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say that I came to this conclusion this week, actually, where you have on one side of the spectrum the privacy people, the other side, the, let's say, shadier areas of the ad industry, um, there's going to be no meeting in the middle. You, Someone is always going to feel like they're losing in this, like, and I think there's a lot of great intentions from a lot of really good people and smart people. Doesn't really, that's almost doesn't matter because you're always going to get these privacy people <laughs> who are just going to go. Yeah, they're not privacy people. They're anti-advertising people. Mm. And they shouldn't be listened to, frankly, uh, but they are. Um, so, um, okay, so that's the policy part. Then the second part of UID is the pragmatic part. Will it work? Will it, will it effectively allow people to target ads? Um, and so I think the way to think about that is about scale. Um, obviously, it's technically feasible that it would work, um, but how often will it work and will it solve advertisers' problems? And this is where like it becomes sort of a strategic question, like who would adopt it, who won't? Um, and with, with publisher logins, there's sort of this power curve where the top sites like the FT, New York Times, a couple of other ones have a lot of the percentage of current logins. And if they participate, it gets very powerful. And if they don't, it isn't. And I think the same thing goes for CTV where uh, a handful of AVOD services um, like Paramount Plus and Peacock and FUBU and a couple of others are the vast majority of available uh, ad impressions. And if they all participate, it'll be great. And if they don't, it won't. Um, so, um, so that's the hard work that has to be done by you know the trade desk and other members of, of the ecosystem to get critical mass to make it useful. Yeah. I mean, you think about how long it's been taking to get to this point that we're at now as well. It's like, mm -hmm. this doesn't sort of just will be a, a, a easily adopted thing by like six months, nine months. It's going to be, as you say, and I think businesses will decide whether they want to opt into using it or, or not, I guess. We're in, we're in a absolute classic prisoner's dilemma problem right now. The prisoner's dilemma is that half of the internet is still addressable with third-party cookies, the part that, that Chrome dominates, and half isn't. And so if you build for the future, no cookie, you are ignoring 
the part that works right now. Uh, and if you, yeah. so the optimal short-term strategy is just to put all this stuff off and continue bombing people with cookies on Chrome. Uh, but the optimal long-term strategy is to invest heavily in these new technologies. And I think that Google, I don't think intentionally, I think Google through its malfeasance and arrogance has screwed everyone up by, t by announcing cookies going away from Chrome. And now two years later, we don't really have a roadmap for that. And it, it has been incredibly disruptive to the overall uh, ecosystem. It, imagine a different world where Google had given 90 days. Just be like, hey, cookies go away in 90 days. We have all these sandboxes, they're not ready yet. We wanna work with you, you folks, but 90 days from now, Chrome just does not allow cookies. We, I, think we, I think arguably we'd be in vastly better shape right now. Yeah, and I think that leads on to like, talking about the sandbox because, I mean, some of the proposals that are coming out even now are just, you sort of think, how's that? I mean, it, it must have been thought about at the start, and now it's like, oh, it's just three topics, one topic per yeah. week from three weeks. And you're like, but the new top for those who are listening, we might not have seen the most recent proposal from Google around topics um, came out this week. And I, I'm, I just I feel like we're just not really get it's not really getting anywhere. And I think you're right to say if there's more time if it was more time sensitive, there might be a bit more urgency. But maybe people are very much resting on their laurels on both the buy and sell side that the third party cookie still exists. Yeah, I, I think that you have to ask yourself like what is Google really trying to accomplish here? Um, because Google's ad business is going to be fine without cookies right? They're going to be fine, right? Maybe they lose some targeting ability, but with the sign-in with Google and the Chrome sign-in, they have so many ways of identifying users around the web, uh, and they have the best machine learning in the world. They have all these great things. So are they building these sandbox proposals for their own business, or are they building them for plausible deniability for everybody else's business? Uh, and yeah. I think it's the latter. I think that they're saying, well, we, we have to get rid of cookies because it, you know, we're behind Apple and Firefox on privacy. Okay, so that's the pressure they're on. They have to get rid of cookies. They know that. And probably culturally, because they're a very tech-led company, they want to get rid of cookies. Mm. Um, the Chrome team does, right? And then they say, okay, if we did what I just suggested a couple minutes ago, 90 days, they're gone the attorney generals of the world are going to just like blow us out of the water with the amount of paperwork. It's like total antitrust, you know, Google's keeping all the data themselves, blowing up publishers, the daily mail goes bankrupt, you know, like, right. So they're totally screwed between these two options. So instead what they do is they, it's like, it's like one of those UN committees on, on reducing corruption that includes Yemen. It's like, just like create this like work product thing that's going nowhere just to keep people at bay to make it look like the, co the cookies going away won't be a problem yeah i i remember i did see a presentation from them which i think was also broadcast publicly around how they're trying to balance all the stakeholders oh so it's so difficult to do like the, the ads to consumers and from privacy um and you just sort of think I, I don't I don't know where Sandbox is really is really going to get to where you know clearly the third party cookies going away, but then you know what does Sandbox what what really is going to get like decent amount of adoption out of out of these proposals? Not really, not sure. Just do it, man. Just pull the cookies. 
Yeah. I mean, compare this approach to Apple. Apple just is shipping product, <laughs> shipping product. You may not like what they're up to, but SCAD network exists. People are using it in production. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. At some point, I think you get someone, someone, and at the moment, sort of voted by committee. At some point, someone's going to have to go, well, this is what you have. Good luck. <laughs> and then see how it goes. And I think in the meantime, Google will keep spinning these stories around how they're putting consumers at the center of everything. But as you say, mm -hmm. the reality is their, their core business is going to be reasonably unaffected. So there's that weight off their shoulders, maybe not so much the media publishers, particularly those in Germany who are currently <laughs> coming after them. Um, and I guess you know, one, the, the, just keeping to identity, one thing we've sort of seen sort of gain a bit more popularity in recent times is data clean rooms. And um, mm -hmm. I had Tim from Harbour one in, in the end of last season who spoke around what they do and you know, this idea of data collaboration between data owners. Um, what are your thoughts on clean rooms are they scalable are they valuable what yeah. are your thoughts? i'll take the same approach i took to the uid which is what's the policy and what's the practicality on the policy side it it feels safe like in that your data private data is not being passed between parties um and so it feels like it is a lot safer than say uid um i still wonder if the privacy people would buy into it i think they'd still uh, you can imagine positioning this as giant corporations sharing your data with each other in secret agreements, you know, <laughs> like yep. it still doesn't really pass the test. Nothing passed the test. There's nothing you can do in advertising that will make the privacy people happy. So, so that's the first part. Um, the second question is practicality. And the, and the question on practicality is, um, is, is also around the same question, scale. So how often do you get matches that are usable out of these systems uh, when you're using, um, you know, first party cookies and third party cookies and IP addresses and the sort of witch's brew of identity to try to match people? Um, and um, and is, is it worth it, right? Um, so I, I don't know the specifics on this. I think that there are um, maybe um, some problems that haven't, emerged yet with clean rooms because I think that they're overly dependent on matches and graphs that are not privacy safe, but that doesn't become obvious. Like, for example, um, IP addresses are used quite a bit um, for creating graphs. So let, let's say party one has a top ad graph and party two has, you know, third party cookies and they want to use a clean room to match. Um, there are some pretty unstable foundations of that match because IP addresses are PII in Europe and uh, third party cookies go away. Um, so I, I do wonder how well these matches are working on things that are sustainable, like volunteered email addresses uh, versus things that are actually part of the crumbling identity infrastructure. Yeah. And I think, I, th I think like conceptually, like I've always, even in the early stages of the DMPs where you have like a data owner, a data owner, and a text, just the tech that facilitates. But reality now is you've got to go further than that. You, as you say, you have to look into like, what is it that's actually doing the match? Um, and also you know, what is in these data pools either side? Mm -hmm. and I, don't, I don't think the cleaning can just wash their hands of that, the responsibility for how someone might put in just like, ripped off data that there's absolutely no way to track back to consent with yes. someone else it's like well you've 
you facilitated that. So maybe at some point there's some responsibility. I think there's also an interesting philosophical question, which is, are, is clean room an independent category or is it a category that specifically should belong to the sell side? Um, so if the, if the use case nine times out of 10 is to take an advertiser list and give it to a publisher so a publisher can create a deal ID, then clean room should be a publisher side technology. Like it should be owned by big media companies. Mm. Um, and frankly, they may be able to do it without a lot of third party vendors. There's, um, you know, Snowflake, the independent um, database company ha has been talking about how their technology can be used for clean rooms. I think NBC announced a Snowflake partnership to enable the NBC clean room. Um, so in that environment, clean room is sort of a commodity technology either built into the DMP or just built off the shelf with, you know, with database technology. Um, on the other hand, if it's like a split, if half of it is, is advertisers sending data to publishers for targeting and the other half is publishers sending data to advertisers for, for insights, then it makes sense as an independent category. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's going to be interesting how this, this particular field sort of shakes out this year and next year particularly because of all of the moving regulatory parts and all the stuff we've been talking about. <laughs> identity um yes. just stepping outside of identity now to talk about supply chains and transparency so obviously beeswax very well recognized as being a highly transparent programmatic company however we know through the past 10 20 years that a number of studies get released which talks around how money goes missing and there's discrepancies sure. and bad actors and then recently we saw how Google Google with Project Bernanke, I think I said that correctly. Bernanke, yeah, I think. In, um, which was a while ago, but how they were potentially running a um, uh, like a third party auction as opposed to second party, and you know all these types of things. I think there's just you know these graphs that come out, these stories, might provide a bit of distrust with the industry in general. Um, so, what are your thoughts on? supply chain transparency like to, to what extent should it be disclosed i guess the finances and plus the practices yeah um i think this is pretty important um and there are pretty straightforward steps to take to um for vendors and their customers to get their arms around it um i think that most buy side tools if you started the buyer, go to the supplier. Most buy side tools should provide logs that include all the fees being taken on a given auction or given impression, right? Um, if they don't, that would be very concerning. Uh, and then um, because of uh, sellers.json and uh, ads.txt, um, you should be able to triangulate pretty clearly what inventory you bought, uh, right? Um, whereas a couple of years ago, it was much more difficult. Um, now, um, and then the third part of this is the extent to which you um, are restricting who you're buying from. Because even if you know who you bought from, if you're buying from someone who's a, you know, a, a reseller of a reseller, then certainly you're going to have less transparency, right? Um, so um, I wouldn't advocate having a no reseller policy because there's certainly many value-added resellers, but you should know who you're buying from and your DSP or should help you with that and making smart decisions. Um, 
Now, as far as finding every cent of the transaction, I think that's a little bit much because really it's none of your business how much the sell side is taking uh, from the publisher you're working with. That's the publisher's business. If the, if the Daily Mail, just to use example, wants to work with an SSP who's charging them too much, that's their problem. Like, I don't understand why you, you care as an advertiser. <laughs> I know what you mean. It's like, well, where does the contract sit? <laughs> it's like, right. I, I find, I find that conversation around financial transparency quite reductive. To be honest, mm-hmm. it you just end up going for percentage down, down, down. It's like, well, you end up with some really, you know, some companies which can't even afford to invest in things because not making yeah. any money because you've squeezed them down so far, or they sure. do practices they shouldn't be doing to offset the way you squeeze them down on on paper. So, um, yeah, I, I I know what you mean. I sometimes think on the buy side they get overly fixated on where money's going as opposed to what value are they adding in the in the in the chain yeah exactly i mean i do think that eliminating things that are very wasteful like different supply paths that go to the same place um or um or uh, resellers who are unreliable are that's pretty valuable and important to do but i do think they take it a bit too far i also think that and i've spoken about this publicly many times like the the second most annoying thing in ad tech after the privacy police is the uh, so-called ad tech tax Uh, (laughs) uh, it's not a tax it's something you're voluntarily paying first of all but all parties are voluntarily paying what they're paying. There is no tax man charging you something. And you have to take the counter example, the counter example, which is if that particular pet, let's say you, you bought an impression through some path, buyer to seller, and there was some, and there's data involved and there was verification involved and 40 cents of that dollar did not go to media. That, that, so that, that is uncharitably called the ad tech tech. Well, what's the counterexample? What if you didn't have any of those vendors involved? You wouldn't have bought the ad. The ad would not have shown. It, it's like the Heisenberg ad. As soon as you, if you want the ad to do what you told it to do, you have to pay those vendors. There is no way the ad appears on that site at the volume you want, with the quality you wanted, with the uh, uh, you know risk involved because you only had to buy a single impression. You didn't have to put up millions of dollars or a giant ad buy. All of that is the reason you're paying 40 cents of that dollar. It is a fee that you voluntarily accepted, not a tax. Yeah, I, I mean, I saw this thing going on LinkedIn the other day. It's called the uh, the programmatic poop funnel. And it basically showed how all oh, these gosh. all these fees being taken away. As though there's no alternative. It's like, if a brand wants to go to directly to the publisher, give them whatever it is, go directly to the publisher. Like, you, you could do it, send them some piece of paper. But that's not effective marketing. That technologies is what can really, like, you know, um, optimize and connect and scale and et cetera, et cetera. So those sort of things are just so frustrating and just, like, idiotic. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Oh, slight rant. Slight rant. Get that off the, <laughs> the chest. Um, just, okay, we're moving on to sort of slightly tangential i guess talking about web3 because you had a uh a post which i think the kids would say blew up like went it, blew viral. Up. it blew up went viral people loved it at the back end of last year it's been i've seen it in other publications um for those who may not have seen this thread where you talk around what does web 3.0 mean for um advertising in particular and media would you mind kind of giving your thoughts on it yeah sure so um First of all, I, I'm kind of um, 
attacking a paper tiger here because Web3 is an undefined phrase. Uh, it's propaganda from some financial folks in Silicon Valley. Uh, so um, fighting against undefined concept is a little difficult. Um, but in general, um, there is this feeling that because of the ability to use Ethereum and smart contracts, somehow uh, the concentration that Facebook and Google have um, over advertising, media, and attention will be disrupted. That's like the basic. I think anyone involved in Web3 would kind of say that was one of their goals. Um, when they talk about centralization, they're talking about Facebook and Google. Um, okay, so then you have to say, well, what does that make sense, right? Um, and one, uh, one assumption that I think is not very well described is that somehow because Web3 has a financial aspect to it, these tokens, that some value that currently Facebook and Google are enjoying will be transferred to end consumers. Um, and therefore they will enjoy media in some other format in which they are a participant in the advertising revenue. So this is a myth in my opinion. Um, and I point out in my thread, a couple things. One is that um, most consumers data is not worth very much. Um, and it would not be motivating to most people to get, you know, in the neighborhood of 50 cents to a dollar a month um, in exchange for sort of switching their consumer behavior. Secondly, you would need an enormous switch in consumers behavior. Uh, I mean, uh, think about taking on YouTube or Google or Facebook as a consumer property. Just because you're getting paid to some token in some imaginary Ponzi scheme does not mean that my mom is going to stop watching YouTube. Like, think about how hard it would be to get someone, my mom, who barely knows how she's getting to YouTube to switch. Like, it's just not going to happen. Um, so so this, I, that idea, I think, is just nonsensical. And this idea, and, and as part of that, I point out in my thread that, like, people really like Facebook. <laughs> I mean, let's get out of our bubble. Like, people really like it. It's got network effects. Giving people some spare change isn't really going to change that. Um, the other thing I point out is that if you think about advertising technology as a sector that could, you know, benefit from, um, you know, uh, some technology on Web3, um, it really doesn't make a lot of sense um, in that uh, I didn't even talk about this in my thread, but the most obvious example is that the transaction volume is so enormously high that uh, any sort of blockchain technology, even one in the future, couldn't possibly be cost effective. Um, you know, at Beeswax, we were evaluating 3 million queries per second. Uh, the whole blockchain does less than that a day. Um, so, I mean, it's just, come on, it's just not realistic. Also, you know, the ad tech world is very decentralized. I, I mean, people, some people have made the counter argument that by market share, it's centralized, fine. But by the ability to use different technologies, it's very decentralized. You there, you have your choice of technologies. You can use a different answer or you can use a different measurement company. Uh, I can create a new ad tech company tomorrow and probably get a couple of clients. It's, it's very open. Um, and so I'm not really even clear what solution that would be solving. Um, so that was my short version of my rant online. It was, it was the, I'll link to it in the podcast description because it was, um, it was very good, but is there anything you think, I know Web3 as a term is kind of exceptionally broad, but is there any parts of it which you think could be relevant? I think particularly in, in advertising, in, in ad tech and advertising. I think that the only thing I'm hearing that is interesting in tokenization of 
assets is around um, intellectual property rights. Um, so NFTs are, are kind of a bad first stop, start because they often don't come with intellectual property rights. You're literally just buying a JPEG. Um, and, um, and there are more interesting things going on around um, like music licensing as an example, where uh, an artist can create an NFT of their song and then get paid when it gets um, shared or played or resold. And, and uh, Mark Cuban had the example of textbooks as an opportunity because the authors of textbooks don't get paid on resale and that's a very commonly resold product. Um, and, um, and you can even imagine physical items like imagine if um, you and I and some other friends wanted to buy some real estate and use it as an investment property, in the current world, we'd create an LLP, or at least in the US, we'd create an LLP, uh, probably have $10,000 worth of legal expenses, um, and et cetera, et cetera. You could imagine that being automated through what's called a DAO or, um, and, and made you know, much more um, automated. Okay. Yeah, the DAO is really interesting. The, the one that gets used is the golf course one. And as a golfer, really interesting. Now, like a membership, you can then own a golf, own a golf course with no sort of people in the middle. Um, Someone's created, Gary V is creating a uh, DAO based restaurant where he's selling tokens to his restaurant to basically to raise like $10 million to build the restaurant. And then if you're a token holder, it's like a private club, Soho House, where only you can go in. I saw he's also got Vayner NFT as a business now. So, I mean, yeah. he's clearly doubling down on these things. Um, I wish I had that hustle. <laughs> all about the hustle. Um, so something new we're going to do in season two, and you're the first person we're trialing this on, is a quick fire one sentence answer round. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a, a couple of company names. I just want the first sentence that comes to mind. Oh God, I'm back. in trouble. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, the first one, Media Math. Oh, pass. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I can give you one part. I can give you one pass. You can have one pass. That's it's used. Um, next one, Xander. TV. Uh, Pubmatic. Infrastructure. And then finally, InfoSum. Clean room. There we go. Thanks, Ali, for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. It's been great to get your thoughts on so many different things in a very short space of time. Um, yeah, I know you, you, you write, you've got a very active Twitter. So if people listening, where can they go and sort of hear more from you? Yeah, Twitter's the best place. Follow me on Twitter, AriPap, A-R-I-P-A-P. Um, I'm also available on LinkedIn. I will answer your questions and emails. Um, the, um, so I'm happy to help when people need help. Awesome. Uh, thank you very much, Ari. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That was a very fun discussion with Ari. It's amazing how we can cover so many topics and Ari can still go deep in detail, but at a way which makes total sense. So incredibly pleased that he was the first guest on for season two. And I look forward to seeing you next time for episode two and season two of The Ad Pod. Stay safe. <laughs>